Today on the Church Next podcast, learn from the Reverend Dr. Randall Warren about how to use icons in prayer. Hi, welcome to Church Next podcast. My name is Liz Brignac, and I will be one of your hosts today. I'm a course producer for Church Next. And I'm Carrie Graves, a course producer for Church Next. And today we're going to be talking about praying with icons and how to pray with icons. Carrie, have you ever prayed with icons before? I have a bit, but I have to say I'm not as experienced, so I'm looking forward to delving into that a little more deeply. Um, I do understand them to be windows into uh, another dimension, I might say, where we can connect with spirit. I have learned a little bit about them. I had a friend, he wrote icons. He used to talk about it a lot. He had a whole studio with all kinds of special icon equipment and gold. And yeah, I did not realize until I spoke to him what a discipline it is and how formal it is and the lengthy tradition involved in writing icons. And I'm interested in learning a little bit more about the experience of praying with icons. Yes, I've worked with some um, priests who have written icons in the past. And I remember one in particular in South Carolina who would talk about the egg wash and the gold paints and and like you were saying, the whole process. And um, it's really pretty fascinating to learn a little bit more about what goes into that and thinking about the care and the the detail that is preparing this object through which we're going to meditate. The idea of it as a window into another dimension is one that I had not quite gotten. One of the things that I really enjoy about working at Church Next is that I'm just like a lot of the people who listen to the podcast or who take the classes. It's really fun to kind of come at it from the perspective of the learners as well as the perspective of the instructors. I learn a lot about it and then write about it. But I think it's going to be fun to learn about icon prayer with the Reverend Dr. Stevens. Yes, me too. I Every time we do a class, a podcast, I learn so much. Whether it's a topic I already knew a decent amount about or not, it's every instructor brings something new and uh, usually I'm, I'm just learning a ton. I really get excited about it. There are conferences and workshops and retreats often at our Um, at least in the Episcopal world at our camp and conference centers, they'll have um, icon writing retreat. Yeah, it's a very popular prayer discipline, both from the writing perspective and from the prayer perspective. To give you some background on the instructor, the Reverend Dr. Randall Warren is rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he's an author and a teacher and very experienced with prayer with icons. And Today, just to give you kind of an overview of what his talk will be about, he introduces us to praying with icons, how to understand icons, the reasons for their creation, and the history of icons in the Western Christian Church, which is not always a calm and peaceful history, and he offers guidance on how to pray with icons in our own devotions. Along the way, he walks us through several beautiful and famous icons, teaching us about the symbolism they employ and its meanings. We will include images of these icons on the notes for the podcast so that you have some sense, if you have time to look at them, of the images he's talking about. 
but you can still get a lot out of what he's saying even if you can't see them. So don't worry if you don't have access to them. But if you want to look and find out a little bit more about them, they will be available. In his first talk, Randall asks why to pray with icons? Why do we do that particular form of prayer? The practice of praying with icons is of veritable antiquity. People have been, as we will learn in our theology and history sessions, praying with icons since the earliest centuries of the church. Icons bring a sense of uh, the presence of God and of God's love to our lives. And if you think about it, in many ways for Western Christians, words are our icons. Our Christian tradition cherishes, for example, the words of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and the prayers of our denominations, whether spontaneous or written, shape our theology, our worship, and our Christian identity. Um, and hymnody. We love hymns. Hymns are prayer words set to music. Um, and whether it's an old favorite like Amazing Grace by John Newton or a newer favorite like Here I Am to Worship by Plus One, hymns inspire strong religious feelings in us. Icons can do the same. Um, and don't forget the scriptures, the word of God. Uh, people have been praying the Psalms for well over 2,000 years. And biblical texts move us to prayer when we read them alone or in worship or hear them in sermons and Sunday school classes. Our tradition is composed of words. Biologically speaking, if words are used, we're engaging the Broca's area of our brain's left frontal lobe and the auditory cortex of the left temporal lobe. From a biological point of view, when looking at icons, we use the visual cortex of our brain's left and right occipital lobes. And it may well be that over the centuries, the many different ways that we have developed to pray relate to the use of the many different parts of our brains. Finding ways to pray that use more than just words might be a way to use more of our brain to dedicate more of ourselves to prayer. So when we use icons in prayer, we are using different emotional and mental pathways because icons are visual, not verbal. To put it in another way, icons pass our eyes, and if we think about them, they go through our minds and sink to our hearts. Praying with icons can help us develop further pathways to the heart where we may welcome the divine and allow it to transform us. Icons can bypass our chattering minds. They can help us be still inside. They can help us see the presence of Christ within us. And sometimes it is very important to turn off the word factory in our heads. Let's take a look at the icon of Christ from the 13th century at Mount Athos. 
as we sit with this icon, it evokes a sense of peace and serenity. It's easy to be drawn into Christ's eyes. It's a beautiful icon. And it's easy even to imagine the monks of Mount Athos meditating before this icon. After we sit and gaze prayerfully at the icon, we can start to analyze it. We notice that Christ is holding a book of the Gospels, the story of his life in the flesh. We know that Christ is present to us in the word. His right hand is raised in blessing. This style of icon is called Christ Pantocrator, or Christ the All-Powerful. And the message the icon seems to be giving us is that Christ's power is displayed in his life in the flesh and in the act of blessing. Isn't that a powerful message? So the question the icon leaves with us, and the question I'll leave you with, how has Christ's power been displayed in your life? How has Christ's power been displayed in your flesh? Next, Randall explores the theology behind the writing and use of icon. Since the incarnation is the core doctrine of Christianity, he argues that icon's portrayal of the divine in human form is key to understanding our faith. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Christ is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. It's a beautiful text, and it reminds us that the incarnation is a core doctrine of Christian theology. God's creative word was made flesh in Jesus. So when God's creative word is made flesh, two really important things happen. One of them is that when we see Jesus, we see God. The other is that human and divine are brought together in Jesus. They no longer need to be opposites. They no longer need to be separate. Jesus brings together the human and the divine. And because the human is one of the major domains of God's work in the world, icons almost always, with only very rare exceptions, icons always feature a person. The ninth century bishop Theophanes of Nicaea, there's a name for you, wrote, when divine beauty merged with human malevolence, it saved human nature. It is this salvation that is depicted in icons and in sacred texts. Icons are all about the word of God becoming flesh. So when we look at images of Christ, of Mary, his mother, of saintly people, we can see something about God and about the merits of the Christian life. Take a look at the icon of the Transfiguration. This icon comes from the 1500s in Russia. Another beautiful icon. You'll notice at the center at the top, 
Christ appears in a circle of light. That circle of light is called a mandalora. He appears in that circle of light in two icons, the transfiguration and the resurrection. There's something about light in both of those stories. So Moses and Elijah appear with him on the mountain. As we come to the middle of the icon, we notice that on one side is an image of Christ and his followers ascending the mountain. And on the other side is an image of Christ and his followers descending the mountain. And at the bottom, we see the very sleepy disciples. There's a message in that. If you read the icon from the bottom to the top, the spiritual path is waking up, following Jesus, and being transfigured into his likeness. The message is reinforced by the mountains. If you look closely, you'll notice that the mountain that Jesus stands on is the same mountain at the base of which the disciples, sleepy disciples are waking up. In contrast, Moses and Elijah stand behind that mountain on another set of rocks. They are trans transcendent and trans um, historical figures at this point. Um, and the reminder is that the disciples can be on the same path, on the same mountain as Jesus. This is what icons are all about. Seeing God in Christ, following Christ, and being transfigured into his likeness. Let's look at the icon of Mary Magdalene. We don't know the date of this icon or the iconographer. But we know, looking at the icon, that she stands before us serenely and against a golden background which almost obscures the golden glow of the halo of her sanctity. Her skin seems to glow as well. This is someone who is filled with the light of Christ. The myrrh jar in her left hand reminds us of her trip to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. The cross in her right hand is significantly not a crucifix. She was the first to proclaim the resurrection. We also know that she preached in Rome and converted many people. So traditionally, she is called Mary Magdalene, equal to the apostles, standing in the light of Christ, filled with the light of Christ, sharing the light of Christ is the goal of Christian life. So here's the question I'll end with. If someone wrote an icon of you, what objects might you be holding to signify the character of your Christian ministry? In his third talk, Randall talks about the history of icons in the Western Christian Church. It has not always been an easy history. They have been reviled by iconoclasts and adored by iconoduals. We learn about various figures and groups who battled over the status of icons in religious doctrine.
Now, I want to make a special word to those of you from Protestant traditions. You come from a tradition that has concerns about the veneration of Mary. This comes from your traditions, but passion for the word over symbols and images, and I understand that. It may help you to remember, as we said before, that icons are all about the word made flesh. And so icons of Mary are icons about her role in the word made flesh. Notice, for example, in this icon, how tenderly the mother's holding her child and how they're cheek to cheek. And notice, too, the child's right hand and foot are exposed. And I love the fact that there's a little child sandal on the baby's foot. This is a very human baby, Jesus, lovingly held by his mother. The focus of the icon is on the child. She bends her head to the child. Her left hand points to him, drawing our attention. His look is conscious and alert. We could almost say enlightened. This very human child is also divine. We know that very early on, Christians used religious images. The Christian catacombs from the 2nd and early 3rd centuries had uh, frescoes of biblical scenes. And Eusebius, a bishop and historian from the 300s, who was a little cranky, complained about the use of images among Christians. One source of controversy for Christians around images was the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that spirit is good and matter is bad. So much so that they didn't believe that Jesus really became human because that would make him matter and matter is bad. With those kind of beliefs, you can imagine that Gnostics did not like icons. This country controversy continued until, oh, the late 700s, early 800s. That's when things started to get really crazy. There were two sides. The iconoclasts who were opposed to icons and the iconoduls who were lovers of icons. In uh, sometime between 726 and 730, Leo III, emperor of Rome, um, banned the use of religious imageries. Uh, and this lasted until about 787. During that time, St. Stephen the Younger, let's take a look at his icon, was a defender of icons, an iconodule. He's shown here in his icon with an icon that he's holding up, an icon within an icon. He was clubbed to death in six, seven, 764 for defending icons. He's shown in this image with his arms open, welcoming his martyrdom. The martyrdom of St. Stephen the Younger really galvanized the iconoduls, and it led to the reinstitution of the use of icons among Christians. Just for fun, let's look at an image from the Schuldolf Psalter. It is of Nikephoros I. He was patriarch of Constantinople from 806 to 814. He supported the cause of icons. The Schuldolf Psalter is a book of psalms composed in the early 18, 800s, um, and the illustrations in the book 
were the illustrations of iconodules. They were very anti-iconoclastic. And you can tell that from this image of Nikephoros I stomping on an iconoclast. Let's look at another page from the Psalter. Here Christ is on the cross looking down in sorrow, not at his tortures, but at an iconoclast whitewashing his image off a church wall. In 815, Emperor Leo V reinstated the ban of icons, but they were finally and decisively reinstated at a synod in Constantinople in 842. They were reinstated for two reasons. They helped illiterate people learn the Bible stories, and because they proclaimed the Word made flesh. In the West, the Renaissance focus on humanism and the Protestant Reformation's valuing of word over image led to an almost total disappearance of icons. In the late 20th century, an interest in, in icons began to return. This was based in large part on the liturgical renewal and the rise of interest in spirituality. In his fourth talk, Randall explores symbolism in icons. Icons rely more than even many other art forms on recognizable symbols to transmit consistent meanings. So in this lesson, Randall explores several specific icons, identifying and explaining some of the symbols they employ. Let's take a look at the icon of the Annunciation written by the great 15th century iconographer St. Andrei Rublev. Rublev was a Russian Orthodox monk. He wrote this icon in 1405 and it currently hangs in Moscow's Cathedral of the Annunciation. Some of the most subtle iconic symbolism is found in the gestures. The Archangel Gabriel on the left has widely spread legs, so it looks as though he is running to deliver the message that God gave him. His staff is the symbol of a messenger, and it is held in his left hand and leaned in Mary's direction. His right hand is stretched towards Mary, drawing our attention to her and the message for her. Mary, on the right, is seated, and that gives her more status than the archangel. Her posture shows her acceptance of the message. Her head is bent towards the message bearer, and her right hand is over her heart. The image in the background says something as well, as backgrounds often do in icons. There are buildings in the background. Buildings in the background say that this event has primary impact on culture on human community. If landscape were in the background, the event portrayed would be a renewal of the created order. The buildings have many portals and windows, which are symbols of openness. Openness behind the Archangel Gabriel says that he is a messenger of God's openness to human beings and the human experience. Openness behind Mary symbolizes her openness to Gabriel's message and the Holy Spirit. There's a red 
fabric draping portrayed across the top of the architecture. This is really important, and you always want to look for it. In icons, that draping says that the principal Trinitarian actor in the scene is the Holy Spirit. And in fact, here we see the Holy Spirit reaching out to Mary as beams of light. Let's take a look at the 16th century Russian icon of the crucifixion. It's displayed, it's displayed in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. The lettering on the top names the icon, and traditional icons are labeled in Greek, but spelled out in church Slavonic letters. The initials over the cross, which look to us like IC and XC, are actually initials for Jesus Christ. Initials which often look like MP to us, identify Mary, the God-bearer. There are other symbols, too. The wall behind the crucifixion suggests the wall of Jerusalem. Historically, the crucifixion took place outside the walls of Jerusalem. Theologically, the image reminds us that the news of Christ's saving death and resurrection is carried by Christians out from Jerusalem to the whole world. The angels in attendance remind us that this is a divine action. And the icon is a compilation of all four gospel stories. Mary, Jesus' mother, and her sister are on the left, as reported to us in the gospel according to John. As is John and the centurion, which is reported to us from the gospels of Mark and Luke. We presume the cave beneath the cross was opened following Jesus' death by the earthquake reported in Matthew. It's important to notice that Jesus is portrayed after he has died. His eyes are closed. This is no medieval, painfully suffering Christ. For early Christians, the suffering of Christ was not redemptive, but another proof of his humanity. This is a human death, a seeming defeat, and yet the icon hints that it's truly a victory. Finally, let's look at an icon of the three holy hierarchs. It comes from the 17th century and hangs in a museum in Sanok, Poland. The three fourth century bishops are, from left to right, St. Basil of Caesarea, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Gregory Nazianzen. These three played pivotal roles in articulating the Christian understanding of the human and divine natures of Christ and the Holy Trinity. These three are standing under an arch. Arches are symbols of triumph. Early urban dwellers often built arches through which their victorious and triumphant generals could re-enter the city. In Christian churches, arches remind us of the triumph of Christ. And their hands are raised in blessing. They hold gospel books in their left hands, and their vestments have the geometric designs that traditionally indicate bishops in icons. But here's the important thing to remember. Vestments adorn the message, not the minister. And so the focus in this icon is on the message 
of the triumph of Christ. How are you blessed by that message? Who shared that message with you? In his final talk, Randall discusses how we can use icons to enrich our prayer lives. He talks about how icons help draw us into moments of reflection and experiences of the divine, and how they offer a specific scene or image upon which to meditate, think, and pray. Let's take a look at the icon of the Holy Trinity. It was written by St. Andrei Ruplev in 1425 and now hangs in Moscow's Tretyakov Gallery. The style of the Holy Trinity icon is sometimes called the hospitality of Abraham because the imagery is based on Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham receives three angelic visitors. In Eastern Christianity, this story is seen as an image of the Trinity. Notice how serene and quietly joyful the image is. The three figures, like the Trinity, are one yet distinct. Their faces are, their sa are all the same. They all have wings the color of harvest corn. Isn't that fun? And they all wear blue, the color of the sky and the color of the sea. They are drawn in a circle around a rectangular table. The fourth spot at the table is for you, the viewer of the icon. You take that space and you complete the circle. The figures are from left to right, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The angel representing the Father is dressed in pink, a highly unusual, we might even say distinctive color in icons. His head is nodding to the other two figures. The structure behind him, in terms of the Genesis story, could be Abraham and Sarah's residence. Theologically, it signals God's openness. The angel representing the sun is in the center of the icon. He's dressed in purple, sometimes a royal color, sometimes a sorrowful color. His head nods towards the father. The plant behind him makes us think of John 15:5, I am the vine and you are the branches. The dish directly in front of him reminds us of Holy Communion. The meat in the dish reminds us that he really was flesh. The angel representing the Holy Spirit is the renewer of creation, hence dressed in green, and a mountain is in the background. The angel is carrying the staff of a messenger because in the Nicene Creed we say of the Holy Spirit, he has spoken through the prophets. How might we pray with this icon? The first thing to do is find the right place for praying. You probably want a clean and quiet room. You don't want visual distraction. You don't want auditory distraction. You don't need absolute silence, but try not to have loud banging noises when you pray. Generally, always a good idea. You can choose to have music. I would recommend music without words and be careful what you pick. The 1812 Overture with its booming cannons probably isn't the best choice. 
Have a seat where you can sit comfortably with your back straight because it facilitates good breathing. And keep your feet flat on the floor. It reminds you to be grounded. Also, feet flat on the floor keeps away cramps and numbness that will distract you from your prayer. Place your icon where you can comfortably see it at a good uh, spot in good light with a candle for mood, if you wish. Put the icon a little below eye level where it's easy to look at. Set your icon. Think about it. Look at it. Enjoy it. And remember that icons are about the word made flesh. Because of that, I find the ancient process of Lectio Divina, or divine reading, to work really well with icons. Step one is read your icon. Sit comfortably. Count your breaths for a few moments. It helps you slow them down. helps you settle your mind. Then look at your icon and enjoy it. Take your time. It's fun. It's fine to think about the story and the people that it portrays. Next, meditate on the icon, by which we mean imagine the scene and imagine yourself involved in the scene or imagine yourself present to see and hear what's happening. With our icon of the Holy Trinity, for example, you might imagine how you would feel being seated at the table with those three. Spiritually speaking, you are. You might imagine what you hear them saying. Pay attention to what emerges in your thoughts and in your feelings. Step three is to pray. Share with God what has come up for you. God loves you. Have a loving conversation. And step four is to contemplate. You've talked to God. Now be quiet and listen for a little bit. Continue to enjoy looking at your icon and listen for what else comes up for you or what God might have to say to you. That's the end of Randall's talk. If you would like to learn more, we have a lot of classes on different approaches to prayer. And I mean, a lot of classes on different approaches to prayer. <laughs> we have everything from praying through gardening to praying through knitting but some of the more formal ones include praying the examine. We have a course on that. We have a course on praying with the Anglican rosary. Yeah. That's a very popular course. Um, a lot of people have enjoyed that one. We've had, we have a course on praying with poetry with a man from my congregation. It is a wonderful course wow. on reading poems and using them to connect with God. He has a whole book about it. And that was a really good class. Those are three classes, several of which have been made into podcasts that we have available. Can you think of other ones off the top of your head, Carrie? Yes, actually, because it's one of the first classes I did and I was familiar with the book, but again, learned so much is Praying in Color with Sybil Macbeth. I really love that one definitely worth checking out and it can be done with all ages pretty much in any setting praying with visual art you mentioned that and that made me think about we have praying with visual art with roger yes. hutchison which is an interesting one too that one is really better taken i don't think we're going to make a podcast of that one because it requires being able to look at the images 
Um, but that was a really good one. It's not iconography, but it's. Oh, yes, that was very good. And I um, interestingly, Roger mentions in that class, um, an artist called Mother Mary Proctor. Um, you'll have to check her out, check out the course. But um, I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, and we have a museum called the American Visionary Art Museum. And it's for untrained artists and the exhibits are just amazing. And the most recent one has three of Mother Mary Proctor's pieces. So when I went, I was like, wow, look, there it is. And connecting with all I learned in the class, very exciting. I really enjoy, people call it folk art. And I always find it a little weird that you have to put folk before it. I mean, it's art, yeah. but <laughs> Smithsonian American Art Museum. They have the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly. Whoa. This unbelievable altar that this guy made in his garage. And it's all out of foil and cardboard. And it's the most beautiful thing. He was a very evangelical, I think, Christian. And he just spent years putting these foil cardboard creations together. And when you look at it all together, it's faith just comes through this elaborate foil cardboard piece. Anyway, art and we were talking about art and the ability of art to help ease our way into prayer. And I think this guy's work is prayer. That sounds incredible. Maybe we can include a link to that in the notes for the podcast. I will I will be happy to do that. It's well worth looking at. I, the picture doesn't do it justice. It's way bigger than I am. You can't really tell from the image I'm looking at, but yeah. So I could say he's using foil. It does remind me of the gold foil on icons. Yes, it does. But I mean, this was, I don't think this guy had a lot of money. He was just, like I said, working out of his garage. So this is like, what my mom called tin foil, it's aluminum foil. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know. I don't. There, there does seem to be gold in there, but I don't think he had access to gold foil, so I'm not sure what that is. Maybe paint. Different interpretation. Yeah, I love it. I do have a number of icons actually hanging around my house, and um, what I haven't done is take the time to really sit and meditate with them. So I look forward to doing that. But they are beautiful and inspiring, and. Um, you can find them in a lot of places. They can be quite expensive, incredible, incredibly handmade things, or you can find uh, replicas in like your local church bookstore and other places. And they, they really are um, a wonderful addition to faith at home, if you will, to an altar at home, to a space that is um, you've curated where you feel closer to God in your home. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. If you'd like to check out our classes on prayer or really anything, go to churchnext.tv and just browse through our library. We'll close with a prayer, which is actually a portion of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to worship you in the beauty of holiness. Amen.